very much, Rosie. Yeah, it's a beautiful morning in L.A. Uh, as if things weren't bad enough in 1940, Alma Mahler decided it was time for her to cross the Pyrenees. She had been married to Gustav Mahler, the composer, and Walter Gropius, the architect. She was now married to the writer Franz Werfel. The fact that two of her husbands were Jewish seemed to puzzle her because she was suffering from an anti-Semitism that moved from being mild to being shrill. She had 23 suitcases. They arrived in Lourdes, I mean, yeah, the place of St. Bernadette, and they waited there, wondering what they should do. Um, Franz Berkel decided he went down to the grotto and um, saw the all the St. Bernadette, all the processions, and he said, if we get out of here alive, if we get out of this Lourdes place alive, I will write a book and I will make this place much more famous than it already, than it already is. There was, there were, they were very lucky that there was a man in the south of France called Varian Fry, who was working at one remove for the American government. And his job was to get famous people to come to America as refugees. He wanted to get Picasso. He wanted to get Braque. He wanted to get people of that ilk to come. Instead, of course, secretly, he was working at getting left-wing people out, getting anyone really in danger um, out of the south of France, away from the Nazis, into Spain and from Spain to America. And so he helped. He got the three. He got the twenty-three suitcases, and um, he 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 got them to go by train. But he needed the people to walk over the Pyrenees. Golo Mann, Thomas Mann's um, son, had been in held in a concentration camp very briefly. Had escaped. Was now with his uncle Heinrich Heinrich Mann, the writer, and Heinrich's second wife. Um, and the job was to get them over the Pyrenees. Heinrich was almost seventy at this point, suffering from a bad heart. Golo Mann describes. Um, Alma Mahler, as she was wearing a white dress to walk over the Pyrenees, and her dress billowed in the wind as they as they climbed like a flag of surrender, um, and um, and so um, they set out um, to make their way um, to make their way across the Atlantic. Um, Alma Mahler strangely had with her in a briefcase which she held close to her all the time the actual fourth symphony of Bruckner in his own hand which she had attempted, and I do not make this up, to sell to Hitler personally, Hitler personally being involved as a collector in collecting manuscripts and scores of music, especially the music of Bruckner, which was notorious because he had written so many versions, so many versions have been made. Hitler, Hitler, I mean, Adolf Hitler wanted the original and he was prepared to buy it from Alma Mahler, who was ready to sell it to him. She went to the German embassy in Paris, but the problem was she wanted cash and they didn't have enough cash. And so she ended up carrying this, plus a lock of Beethoven's hair, which had been given to her husband. She carried these two over the Pyrenees and they made their way to America. In America, when the boat landed, they were met by Thomas Mann and his wife. Thomas Mann was the most famous among the German exiles um, at that time um, in America. He had befriended or he had bonded with Roosevelt, who trusted him and saw him as a figure of the center when so many who had come were figures of the left and so many who had come were also suspect in various ways, man seemed to have risen above this. Um, this he was born in 1875, which means by this time he's 65, 66. He, had, he won the Nobel Prize in 1929 and he's living in Princeton. And so his son, he, he now has rescued all of his family from Europe. His six children are now in America. His daughter, Monica, 
she, she managed to cross on a boat called the Isle of Benares, which was torpedoed on its way to Canada. Her husband was drowned, but she survived. So Thomas Mann has now got his visas for his six children, for, for, for his brother and for his sister-in-law. And he's in Princeton. The question is, and the strange question, why did most of these people move to Los Angeles? What did Los Angeles have that, for example, New York, Washington or Boston didn't have? Um, at first, of course, it's easy to say that some of them went because of Hollywood. But actually, very few ended up working with Hollywood. Hollywood didn't didn't want German writers to write screenplays in, in general. And people who, who were involved in music, again, very, very scarcely used. Perhaps it's, it can be explained by looking at how Irish people who came generally from very remote places in the west of Ireland, from the islands or from Connemara, small farms. Um, why did they not want to go to farms in America? Why did they go to Boston, New York? Why did they become cops and firemen, the men and the women work, for example, as maids in houses in the cities? Because they wanted to, America wanted to offer them some sort of change. The last thing they wanted was to return to the very site of their own poverty, which was fields, land, farming. They wanted to become urban. They became urban some within a week. They, they, they sort of followed their brothers, their cousins into various jobs in construction or into being farming. So too, the German exiles, the last thing they wanted was a reproduction of Munich or Berlin in the new country. They wanted things that Germany didn't have. They wanted sunshine and they wanted um, being close to the big ocean. And of course, it was cheap. And also what was more important was that Los Angeles is, to, even to this day, a really good place for outsiders. It's built by outsiders. It's made up of outsiders. And so they didn't stand out as much as Germans as they would have in Philadelphia or in New York or indeed in Princeton. And so um, they arrived, the German intellectuals, um, figures like um, Arnold Schoenberg, the composer, Horkheimer, the sociologist, Adorno, the musicologist and philosopher, Thomas Mann, the writer, his brother Heinrich, the writer, and many, many more arrived in Los Angeles. And of, and of course, included Bertolt Brecht, uh, the playwright who disliked Thomas Mann intensely. Thomas Mann did not like him either. So the feuds, in a way, that had been going on anyway in Germany were now exacerbated by the fact that these these were in a these Germans were now in a bubble in Los Angeles. They saw one another reg regularly. There was a great deal of backbiting and, and faction fighting. I should say that once Alma Mahler arrived on the scene, this backbiting, backbiting and feuding intensified because she, she could move among all of them, fermenting this and seeing whatever trouble she, she could cause. Um, I mean, Berthold wrote his book called Song of Bernadette. He wrote it genuinely as an act of homage to the place he had, he had been, the promise he had made that he would write a book about St. Bernadette. Little did he know as he was writing the book that this, of all the books written by the German exiles in these war years in America, this was the book that would hit the spot, written by a Jewish writer about a saint and um, written in a sort of, I suppose we might call it a sugary style or a style that at least accepted the possibility of the miraculous. And it was made into a film and it made um, Alma Mahler even richer than she was. She had obviously all the income from the, the, from the music of Gustav Mahler, and now she had uh, this, this money as well. Thomas Mann's book sold incredibly well in America. Among the exiles, he was the one who, who's, any household above a certain level of culture in America had the hardbacks of Thomas Mann, Buddenbrooks, The Magic Mountain, those books. And so that he could live extremely well in America, he built a beautiful house recently, 
which has been um, remade by the uh, redone by the German government on Pacific Palisades near Santa Monica. He built this beautiful mid-century California house, um, all white outside, all the the, the glass, um, uh, the mixture of glass and shade. And um, a lot of open plan, plus, of course, what he wanted was a study for himself away from open plan uh, in the shade with, with less um, with less window space, a great number of bookshelves, as though he was creating the old Germany. He actually managed to get his desk out of Munich and it traveled with him, in, including some paintings. So he remade his old study from Munich in this house in Pacific Palisades away from the rest of the house, which was a much more Californian house. And he did two things in this period when he was living in Los Angeles. Um, the house he built was ready by 1942. We, we noticed the house, even though it's for a, it's for a man in his, um, who's now 67 years old and his wife, who's, that, that, that there are rooms for each of their children because of their six children, four still have not settled, even though they're moving into their 40s. They still are, are single, that the, that the rise of Hitler and the arrival of the war has completely disrupted any possibility they have of putting down roots yeah. of their own. They're, this is still, the family house is still their house. So it looks like a house built by a young couple for a growing family. It's by an elderly couple for a family that in, in certain ways and very interesting ones ha, has not fully grown. Thomas Mann, as I said, did two things now in that house. But first, he became a great public figure in America during the war years with the assistance and support of the president. He began to move around the country and in his faltering English, he began to make public speeches in places like Oklahoma or Ohio or Chicago. And his speech was about the coming victory of democracy. It was not about the need to defeat Hitler. He was taking that for granted. It, 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 it was not about the war engine, which he fully supported. Instead, it was an, an attempt to see the future in the light of the past, to say that there, there is an old German culture which, was, which would lead you towards democracy, an old German culture which was filled with light and possibility and, 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 an, and an idea of culture which was inclusive rather than destructive. He understood that that culture too had its poisonous elements. He took that in, in a way for granted too, but he was saying, I speak as a German I speak in a way as a good German. I speak as a German filled with hope for democracy in the future. We're fighting for not to defeat our enemies, but to win democracy. And that where he said at one point, wherever I am, Germany is. Meaning that his reading, his writing, his entire cultural background represented something that in itself could offer a future to Germany. In the meantime, he was planning a book called Dr. Faustus. And in, and in that book, he would look at the life of a German composer called Adrian Leverkusen, a fictional composer in the early years of the 20th century. And of course, for that, he needed a composer. And in the, at those parties and at those gatherings, he began to notice the presence of the composer Arnold Schoenberg. And Mann, Thomas Mann, he knew a lot about 19th century music. But modern music, serial music, 12-tone music, really was not his thing. He needed someone to help him. He found Adorno, the musicologist, and he brought him into the house. Adorno began to visit every day to help him with the, with, with the techniques he needed to describe in his book. Now, the problem, of course, was that Schoenberg hated Adorno. Thomas Mann didn't know enough for his music, so he literally took pages of an unpublished book by Adorno, put them directly into his book under his own name. When Schoenberg read them, he realized Thomas Mann couldn't have written this. He doesn't know enough. 
Moving between all three is Alma Mahler, telling one what the other is saying, showing Schoenberg bits of the book, going back to Thomas Mann to say how angry Schoenberg is. And so, so, so the whole idea of this group of people with the war over, beginning a major feud over the central issue of who Schoenberg's position was, who owns my life. In other words, that anyone reading the book would realize that the composer was based on him or the composer's musical system was based on him. One day in a supermarket in Brentwood, near here in Los Angeles, he met one of the German exiles and said to her, I, I do not have syphilis. And the woman said, I didn't think you did. And he said, well, people think, and she was it, because the composer in the novel has syphilis. Schoenberg began to worry, do people think that because the composer is based on me in one element, do people think all the other elements are mine too? So he got himself into an enormous fury, A, because he realized that Adorno was involved in the book, and B, because he felt he himself was depicted as less than a genius, as someone who's, um, I mean, the figure of Adrian Leverkuhn in Mann's novel is this sort of lonely genius who's doomed, who's made a pact with the devil, who kills everything he loves. And Schoenberg did, felt that those elements would be always associated with him. And so this feud began um, in this place with the war over, with so many of the exiles having themselves gone home, feeling that, that America was not for them. And certainly by 1950, Thomas Mann's welcome in America had, had, had I think, lessened. He went into East Germany went on one visit to Europe when the Americans specifically asked him not to. His daughter, Erica, seemed to the Americans to have been too early an anti-fascist. So the FBI began to come to the house to question them both about their allegiances and other people, such as, such as the beginning of the McCarthy movement, began to question Thomas Mann about um, his, was he, for example, a communist? And of course, Roosevelt was dead by this time. So his great protector in America was no longer there. So this great genius who had, who had really offered a strange hope in America during the war years to say, this is not about defeating a country. It's not about closing down a, you know, a, a country. It's about opening up a space in our imagination to think that Germany will become a great democracy. By 1952, he decided it was time to go. But America was no longer hospitable. And he um, went not to, live in, not to live in Germany. He never lived in Germany again. He had three more years to live. He was 77 years old. He sold the house in Pacific Palisades that he, that he had built with, with his wife and, and his daughter, Erica. He went to live in Switzerland, where he died three years later. <laughs>